Welcome back to, I think it's our third episode of Take Back Your Schools. My name is Bethany Mandel. I am a homeschooling mom of five kids. My only, my older kids are homeschooling and some of them are at a preschool program, so I can't even say that. That's how I'm able to do things like this in a quiet way. Uh, I am joined by Andrew Gutman, who is an education activist. And I, Andrew, I think I'd actually like you to introduce yourself because you're much better at describing. Sure, it. I'll do it quick. Uh, I'm really dad, education activist co-founder of the Institute for Liberal Values and co-host of Take Back Our Schools. Today, we are talking to one of my favorite people, Rory Cooper. He is um, He was sort of instrumental in the Fairfax County, Virginia conversation about reopening schools. Um, we sort of, we talk a little bit about how we know each other and what his activism is and was. Uh, but if you are unfamiliar with his, his work and his writing, uh, he his best stuff was in the Washington Post uh, local section, actually, um, over the course of the pandemic. And uh, we worked at Heritage at the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative think tank, over ten years ago. And we've, you know, kept up on social media, but we kind of joined forces on the op- reopening our schools sort of mantle. We talked a little bit about because we recorded that segment before. I'm I'm introducing it so I, I can better introduce it. Um, but Andrew, I wanted to ask you before we get into it with him. We're uh, we're right now in late November, and we're going to be releasing this episode pretty soon, so it's going to be timely. And we're watching um, the Omicron. Is that how you say it? Um, yeah, the new variant. How do you pronounce? Yeah, I just called the new variant. It was supposed to be the she. It was the new, then the she, then they skipped those two Greek letters mm-hmm. for political reasons. Interesting. A curious. Yeah. Um, so we didn't we didn't get a chance to ask Rory this, and I I wanted to talk about it. So we're going to take like five minutes before we get into the conversation with Rory to talk about it. Do you think this episode is like really about the reopening the schools um, sort of activism? Do you think that we're going to have to? to kick into overdrive again, are they going to try to close the schools for this variant? Yeah, I think there's a good chance that they do that. You, you see the fear mongering kind of kind of rise up again. Yeah. I don't see any exit out of this. I mean, this is a really scary thing. Yeah, so- and I, I've said this on Twitter and, and people kind of ridicule this a little bit that what we've done to children worldwide is the greatest human rights crime yes. in human history. Yes. Because the number of children it affects, the long-term damage, the mental health issues, the miseducation, is, is just despicable. And now we're seeing a variant out of South Africa that by all early accounts is uh, not very deadly, um, doesn't cause a lot of illness uh, at all. That's mm-hmm. coming from South Africa. Yeah. And now again, this fear mongering campaign is, is ramping up. And yeah, I think we're, we're in danger of the schools closing again. Yeah. So Randy Weigarten um, on Sunday evening, quite late, uh, tweeted, read every word, Amra Khan is coming, the U.S. must act now. And she tweeted a link to an opinion piece in the Washington, uh, or not in the Washington, in the New York Times. Um, so I, I think that you're absolutely correct. So in a future episode... Um, we- and Fauci, by the way, said, you know, prepare for the worst. Yes, yes. I think he said that yesterday yeah, on TV. And, and he said on the Sunday shows also, um, you know, I haven't written off the possibility of, you know, doing everything all over again that we did in yeah. 20. Um I would love to um, I would love to have on a future episode and we, we have to reach out to the writer. Um, if I can assign homework for our our listeners, there was along the lines of what Andrew just said, an absolutely fantastic piece in tablet magazine called What They Did to the Kids. 
And uh, I, I really want to talk to the author and that's, that's going to be my homework or maybe your homework. I don't know, depending on who, you know, but um, it was written by Alex Gutentag and sorry if I mispronounced it, but I, I think you're absolutely correct. It was, it was a human rights catastrophe. And uh, I think that's why it is a human rights yes, catastrophe because it is not ending. Yes. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. Um, so stay tuned. That's we're going to, we're going to use all of our muscle to get him on our podcast. Um, I, I hope that we're not having um, a similar conversation, but having to reopen our schools again with him, but yeah. um, I'm not hopeful. No, no, I, I'm, I'm quite pessimistic about this too. I mean, it's interesting. We talked to Rory about sort of the mask issue, which is in New York city. I mean, it's similar in a lot of ways. You've got the anti-meritocratic stuff, um, especially with the Asian community, but what seems to be rallying parents a little bit in New York city is the mask issue. Yeah. Now, if they go back and close schools, I do think you'll see more of an uprising. Yeah. I don't think it'll be enough to stop this because there are still too many parents that aren't up in arms and, and should be about this. But ho I mean, again, hopefully we don't see the closings, but hopefully if we do see the closings, you will start to finally see a real uprising of parents because we haven't seen that here yeah, in New York either. yet. All right, so without further ado, here's our conversation with Rory Cooper. So Rory is uh, a former colleague of mine from the Heritage Foundation a million T years ago. I don't know when you left, but I left like 11 years ago. When did you leave? Uh, <laughs> now I have to think about what year it is. I guess that would have been 2012. Okay. Oh, wow. So also a really long time ago. So he is now a partner at Purple Strategies and a father of three kids living in Fairfax County, Virginia. Um, and is sort of um, sort of an unexpected hero of the last year and a half. You like really took to the Washington Post and to social media to um, to sort of talk about the school closures and then um, sort of shifted a little bit to Yunkin, but not really. Like you just have been pounding it on the schools. And that's that's what I wanted to talk to you about today, like sort of your analysis on the ground of what happened with Yunkin, but also just like what happened in Fairfax County since the pandemic started and what do you, what is your sort of, what your thoughts on it? So I, I think I want to start out first by just asking you like March of 2020, how old were your kids and what happened? Uh, March of 2020, we go into lockdown and uh, our, my kids at that point were in fourth, first and pre-K, okay. um, going into kindergarten um, was the one, <clears throat> Sam was who I was most worried about because uh, he was going to be entering a virtual environment for kindergarten. Um, but, you know, March of 2020, I think everybody was justified in closing things and mm -hmm. trying to figure out what was about to happen. Um, it at that point, we didn't know if kids were spared or not from COVID. And I think the whole world wanted to find out what was going to happen next. Yeah. I think it was months after that when we realized that um, the kids were safe all along and that schools around this country started opening back up, but the large metropolitan area districts that were more heavily influenced by political unions like Chicago, New York, Washington, San Francisco, LA, that those cities were deciding to keep schools closed. And 
you know, my children would talk to their cousins who lived in different states who were going to school five days a week without masks um, and perfectly safe. When was that? Um, in the fall of 20, uh, the fall of 2020. And they realized that they were um, unique <laughs> and in, in a bad way. And, and so did we. And so I think that's when parents really started um, revving up to try to get these kids back into school because we realized that the real crisis for the children was not COVID. Um, thankfully, thanks to God that they were spared um, from the worst aspects of this, uh, of the disease itself, but that the crisis was the isolation that, that the kids were being isolated from services they needed, whether your kids needed, had special education needs, had special disability needs, whether your children, frankly, just needed to be around other children need to be instructed and educated and the crisis. Um, and that was the crisis and nobody was paying attention to it. And frankly, still too many, uh, too few people are paying attention to it. How was remote school for them? Uh, you know, we did our best to make it as as good as possible. We had the resources to be able to get tutors to help them, uh, but it was hard. It was difficult. We hosted a Halloween get together with uh, my youngest child's uh, kindergarten class because the school wasn't doing anything, and it was outside and these children like looked at each other uh, like they were bizarre aliens <laughs> because they had never seen each other in the flesh. They were just talking heads on screens. This was and, of last year, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is Halloween in 2020. And so it was, uh, it was just bizarre. And, you know, he, uh, he started off in a kindergarten class with a teacher who would talk to them about how scary in-person learning would be which um, was really frustrating. It was, you know, a young teacher who had her own issues with the pandemic and was putting those onto the kids. Luckily, we got transferred out of that class because they started making preparations for a possible return to school. And that teacher was not planning on returning. So we got put into a kindergarten class with just an angelic, lovely kindergarten teacher who handled it as well as anybody could. And that's what I've been trying to say all along. These teachers are not monolithic. You know, there are teachers who wanted to be back in person from the beginning, teachers who knew that this was the wrong way to educate the children. And there are teachers who thought differently. And so it wasn't the group as a whole of teachers that were the problem. It was the unions that they're members of that were, um, that were hoisting these bad conditions upon kids. And that's who needed to be, um, who needed to be held accountable. So when would you say your activism really started? Was it the spring of 2020, or did you really sort of start get ready, getting revved up in the summer and fall? I started talking about it more and more in the spring of 2020 because I could see, I anticipated what was about to happen in the fall in these large districts. And I, and frankly, I, I thought that it might turn into a issue in the presidential campaign, which it frankly didn't, yeah. um, mostly because President Trump and President Biden weren't far off from each other on the issue. I mean, I you know, I'm, I'm a disgruntled Republican and, and I don't think that either president has handled the issue very well. In fact, yeah. most, it, both of them essentially ignored it. And, uh, and I wanted to change that. I wanted people to pay attention to this because I knew that people were focused on adult priorities. They, 
you know, adults are selfish. They wanted mm-hmm. bars open again. They wanted to go to the grocery store again. They didn't care about what was going on with the kids because it didn't affect them. And that was maddening. And so I, you know, I, I was getting loud over the summer of 2020 and um, by 2021 or by the fall of 2020, I could tell that the school districts were setting themselves up to be able to move the goalposts as often as they needed in order to keep those schools closed. Uh, and the, the, there was never really a clear sense of this is what we need to get schools open. The, the demands of the uh, union in Fairfax were that you would have to have three weeks of zero community spread, which we still don't have today. Oh my God, we'll never have. We'll never have. And so, um, and so we were set up for failure from the beginning and I knew it. And I knew that these kids were going to suffer because of it. And then I think that a lot of parents who were more tolerant or accepting of these conditions really lost it when the parent, when the teachers jumped to the front of the vaccine law and then still refused to go back in because now you're breaking like a, a serious social contract, Yeah. right? We're putting you up to get vaccines before people who could die yeah. from not getting the vaccines. And then you're still not coming into school. And I think that's when you saw center left and progressive parents say, okay, that's enough. Yeah. We actually, we're, we're in this coalition too, and the schools need to open up. So sort of funny sidebar on that. Um, so I was pregnant um, when the vaccine started rolling out and I was pretty nervous. Um, the data that we were getting pregnant, COVID was hitting pregnant women really hard. And uh, I wasn't eligible to get the shot in December, January, February. And um, I was pretty mad because I was like, I'm, I'm pretty susceptible as is my unborn baby. Uh, but the teachers had been eligible already for weeks. And so I was like, you know what? I'm a homeschool teacher. I have a little homeschool ID card. And that's how I got my shot before I was eligible because of my medical condition, which was pregnancy. I got my shot. I was like, you know what? Y'all had a couple weeks. They're still not opening eligibility for, for people who are at high risk. And so I'm going to go as a homeschool teacher. And that's how I got my shot in February. And I am not sorry about it. <laughs> oh, you never. But then you never thought of shutting down your school, just you know, <laughs> doing going remote, having the kids in another room <laughs> with you on the TV. Well, you know, I was high risk and all. Um, so do you feel worried? Like, so how would you sort of characterize your activism? Um, you had a ton of Washington Post op-eds. What, what else were you sort of doing locally to organize other parents? Yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, what I was trying to do was play a supporting role to the Fairfax parents, the open FCPS parents who were organizing on their own. I mean, listen, I've, I've spent 25 years in politics and organizing and I've never ever experienced anything from a grassroots level. Like we saw, it was not organized political people who are getting these parents connected and engaged. They were doing it on their own. Yeah. And every once in a while, you know, I might have a little bit of good advice. I might be able to connect them with somebody like a lawyer who can help them on a recall petition, things like that. But they were really doing it on their own. And I was just one of them. I was not a political strategist. I was a dad and I was representing my wife and I as parents. And um, I think that that's what made it different for me. Uh, It was a hundred percent purely personal 
And I know, you know, from looking at FOIAs that the union, the national unions saw me as a Republican operative yeah. who was being somehow like some mystery money being paid to in order to rev everybody up. And it was laughable because you're um, good, but you're not that good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I never made a dollar from it. In fact, it, it cost me a lot of money because I had to hire the tutors and I had right. to, I had to conduct school in my home. Um, so it, it was just parents wanting the best for their kids. Yeah. It's the most altruistic possible of motives. And, um, and I was one of them and I was, and I was infuriated because I knew how this was working. I knew that they got $13 billion in the CARES Act. That wouldn't be enough. So they got $54 billion in the next act. That wouldn't be enough. So they got $126 billion in the American rescue plan. That wouldn't be enough. They weren't even spending the money. Yeah. They were just getting the money and continuing to hold the kids hostage. And it infuriated me. And, um, and so that's how, you know, that, that was my involvement. I mean, you know, signing the petitions and, and helping other parents, you know, and frankly, some of my progressive uh, uh, parent friends understand, you know, what was the real uh, risks involved with opening the schools and why these kids are actually going to suffer more from the decisions that were being made. And, and, and so that's where I was, you know, and, and also worried about some of the systemic issues that would become permanent. Like my kids didn't go to school on a Monday for over a year, like not even the remote learning. There was just nothing on Mondays because they wanted the teachers to have extra planning for the four days of remote. And, and so I saw the, the threat of us having permanent three-day weekends, which you know, we're now starting to look at and see that school districts are starting to look at remote options as an alternative to what they would typically do. And, and so, you know, those fears were founded. What did you do on Mondays? And we had to do, we had to do normal childcare activity. It, we had to treat it like a childcare day. Right. Even though our kids, job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, you know, my wife and I were both working from home and so we were able to manage it with childcare support. And so we were able to manage it, but, you know, as I've said all along, like I was the lucky one, right? Like my kids have managed to um, handle this as well as possible because we socialized them because we kept trying to um, keep their learning up because we were able to be home with them. It was uh, p- part of this was also speaking on behalf of the parents who don't have those resources. Yeah. The parents who had to go, the Amazon drivers mm-hmm. and the UPS drivers and the FedEx drivers and the grocery store clerks, the people who were keeping the world open, their kids were the ones that were, I don't know how they did it. And that's why we saw all these women leave the workforce and then Democrats act like it's some mysterious problem. No, it's not mysterious. They left the workforce because you closed the schools. That's it. And, and, and then a lot of parents decided you know what, this is actually in the better interest of my child. I'm not going to bring them back to public schools. I'm going to homeschool them or I'm going to take them into a different direction. And that's going to end up having a real long-term problem for public schools because it's not school choice advocates who are defunding the public schools. It's the public schools because when they have a lower uh, population of students, they get less money. You know, even with this $200 billion that have been passed through Congress, are going to have financial issues down the road because parents don't want to come back. 
Did you know families that pulled their kids out and homeschooled or, or went to private schools or did other things? Yeah. Yes. A lot of uh, families in our neighborhood, frankly, and my kids' friends, uh, you know, my, my son's best friend in the world um, is going to a parochial school now and they did it for a year and they decided, you know what, this is probably the best environment for them long-term and they're not coming back. Not coming back. And, and that's frustrating because I love our community and I, and I, and I love our elementary school and I want our community to be in that elementary school together because that's part of why we all live here. And the fact that it's now everyone's breaking up and going into different places is frustrating to watch. And we looked at it. We looked at private schools. We looked at parochial schools. Um, we just looked at it too late. You know, we, by the time we got there, the wait lists were too long, especially in the younger grades, because it was the parents who had less connection to the public schools who were pulling the ripcord first. And it was worse for the younger kids, I think, too. It was worse for the younger kids and the older kids could, you know, essentially supervise themselves, which we've now learned was not really happening. Kids weren't <laughs> even going to school at the older ages. They were just turning their monitors on and then playing games or doing whatever else they wanted to do. But the younger, the younger families broke away. And those are the families that aren't going to come back. Yeah. And, um, and it's, it, it's, it's frustrating because it also doesn't really seem like the school board's and listen, Fairfax County School Board is probably one of the most incompetent ones in the country, but it doesn't really seem like they care that these students um, are gone. They they had they ran a campaign in the fall of this year, uh, five days returning to five days a week in person because they had to advertise that they were going to just be open for business because nobody trusted that they were. And I'm still waiting for the shoe to drop once the seasonal flu season spikes. And the school district realizes that they don't really have a way to figure all this out still. Yeah. Do you feel like you've gotten any, um, any sort of social pressure about what, about your activism? Like, or have you ever been concerned socially for your family or your kids that like being sort of such a public face of the open schools movement was going to impact your kids in school with their teachers who might not have felt similarly or like your neighbors who were not fans? Yeah. I mean, I didn't have any problems with any neighbors um, okay. because we all, uh, well, the neighbors that we're close to, uh, we, we were a team throughout the pandemic. We made this all work together. They were, we, we, when I say we had tutors, we had pods of all of our kids together and all right, we're going to do it in your dining room today. And we're going to do it in your dining room tomorrow. And, you know, it was, it was keeping them together. So the neighbors frankly were the thing, and that, that got me through it and still get me through it today. Um, I worried about the teachers. <laughs> uh, I still worry about the teachers, you know, and, and whether or not they hear our kid's last name and are like, are you that Cooper? Uh -huh. Hopefully there's just so many Coopers around that. Uh, <laughs> but no, other than, otherwise, I really, there really wasn't any stigma attached to it because it was even, even media personalities and, and people who I've fought against in politics for 20 years on the left were secretly messaging me and saying, keep at it. I need my kids in school. Like keep doing what you're doing. They knew it was bizarre. They knew it was ridiculous. Yeah. And so it's actually been a fairly popular position to have um, because it's a very small community of people who think that we should still have kids eating lunch outside in 38 degree temperatures, which is happening in my kid's school today. I was wondering. 
Interesting. So I, I've had a different experience and I, I, I'm curious why, I mean, we live geographically probably 15 miles from each other as the crow flies. Um, and I've gotten a lot of pushback for being so open about schools. And the, the line that I get is you homeschool. So why do you care? So I wonder if there's like some of that. Um, so I heard from a mom who I like, don't want to be too identifiable, but she is as lefty as you come. She is, uh, she's a former, uh, she worked for an abortion organization for many years. Um, she works, she worked for uh, democratic people. Like she's, she's left. And she messaged me and said, I'm not allowed to disclose who I voted for because of my job. But uh, Glenn Youngkin was elected by a lot of angry moms and I'm an angry mom. And I was like, I, I had to sit down when she told me basically she voted for Glenn Youngkin. Um, so sort of revving through this last year and now leading up to the Virginia election, what was your experience? I mean, you were, you, you are a disaffected Republican and you were really sort of on board with Youngkin. So what, can you tell me a little bit about that experience and about what you thought Youngkin sort of, what his message how it resonated and sort of how that affected this, this election. Listen, I haven't had a happy election night in over, <laughs> over a decade. And it, so it's, it, it's been hard. It's been hard to be a Republican who was not happy with, um, with the, the regime that we had. I, I was thrilled to be able to get behind a Republican candidate. I believed in again, uh, Youngkin, his coalition very early on were parents now, it might not have been centered around schooling, but you could tell that that, that parents were um, uh, embracing his common sense approach to what Virginia needed to get out of the pandemic. I think that, and I, listen, if schools open in the fall of 2020 in any type of a way, even if it was a hybrid, I think that Youngkin loses and McAuliffe wins. Uh all these other school issues that we talk about, CRT, um, Loudoun County's like terrible school board and what they've been doing, it, those were ancillary and they helped fuel some of it towards the end. But if the schools are open, McAuliffe wins. What happened was center left progressive parents joined a coalition of Republican angry parents and said that whatever happens, schools have to get opened back up. Because, and I explained this to, you know, uh, our, our neighbors, there's an urgency to this. The next time we get another governor, my oldest will almost be out of high school. Wow. So you don't get, uh, you don't get many opportunities to fix your kid's education until it's too late. And so I think that that urgency helped. Now McAuliffe also served it up to him on a silver platter. His messaging was terrible. And then when he got into the debate moderated by Chuck Todd and said, parents shouldn't have a say in their kid's education it, it made it so easy for the Youngkin campaign to use that yeah. uh, in the closing stretch. But I don't, I, I think at that point it was, it was pretty baked in. Parents wanted a different direction and they knew McAuliffe who had received millions and millions of dollars from the national education association and AFT, Randy Weingarten had Randy Weingarten at his closing oh, saw that. at the campaign, which is the most idiotic thing I've ever seen in politics. Uh, Why were they so tone deaf? 
to this? They, I mean, there was so much media attention to this. I mean, CRT, you know, obviously, but, you know, why were the Democratic Party so tone deaf to this? Well, I think that the party has been long locked in step with the unions. And so they, they, they get an information flow that's inside a bubble of people who believe that, that any type of adjustment in education, whether that's choice, whether that's funding students rather than systems, whether that's increased homeschool, they see it as a threat to a, they see it as a threat to a system that it, that funds their political operations and, um, and they also believe it's a threat to the ability to teach uh, America's children a certain curriculum. And, and so they, you know, they don't want there to be a discussion over the system of education. And, uh, and so, I, and, and, and I'll give them a little bit of break that they probably also spoke to parents who were worried about schools being open. There are parents who were fed information from a nervous media, as we're seeing now with the newest variant. Yep. And, and they're worried about their kids. And that's a genuine worry about their kids' health. And nobody tells them, actually, your kid's got a 0.000035% chance of having a problem. Once they're vaccinated, it's almost impossible. I mean, nobody tells them these things. I and mean, so they're concerned and they feed that back to McCall's campaign. And you get the tone deaf response that you got. Do you think there's a permanence here? You think some of these, you know, former Democrats who voted for Yunkin will, will whether they stay independent, whether they go Republican, I, I think you, they see what the schools, what, you know, the unions have done and they'll, you know, stay away from the Democratic Party. Or if, you know, COVID goes away, things go back to normal, they go right back. Do you have a sense? Well, as the great Ed Fulner always says, there's nothing permanent in politics. <laughs> and I don't think that it's permanent. I think that, uh, it's all, it's first off, it's going to be geographically based regardless. So if you think schools are going to win the midterms for Republicans, that's a mistake. It's only going to win the midterms for Republicans in the areas of the country where it, they were largely closed, which means Republicans have an opportunity to pick up seats in suburban Los Angeles, like in, in San Bernardino County, or, you know, in it, maybe in the stretches of the Bay Area, not too close to it. But or the Chicago suburbs, they have chances to pick up some, you know, either local races or even congressional and maybe some statewide. But we also have to, as as education advocates, we also have to understand that if you live in a rural area that has one public school available to you and there's no parochial, there's no private, there's no other options, school choice is not that important to you. If your school's open and you only have one of them, you're you're moving on. So I, I think that. What, what Republicans, the lesson that they should learn is talking about sensible policies that help people's lives and are acknowledging of the current environment around you rather than what you think you want to talk about is how you win elections. And Glenn Youngkin looked around and said, you know what? I, I think that these motivated parents will be behind me if I talk about what they need right now including also he, he ran on eliminating the grocery store tax. Food prices were rising. He saw that as an issue. If you're a Republican, do that. Don't talk about stolen elections or, you know, how we can be more like Trump. Talk about issues that matter to people. And, and if you do that, you've got a shot. And it's, I don't know, like it, that shouldn't really surprise people, but it, it, 
both parties have a problem with actually just trying to solve problems and get out of the way. Yeah. Were you surprised on November 2nd with the result? I was not surprised, but nervous. So I, I, I didn't go into the day thinking that he was absolutely going, that Youngkin was going to win. I did go into it thinking that it was going to be really close. The only thing that gave me a great deal of confidence is that Youngkin's so Virginia Republicans chose Youngkin through a drive-in convention, uh, partially designed to make sure that we didn't end up with a candidate who could not win in a purple state or blue state, really. And his organization was so strong so early. And I think that's his business background um, or, it, you know, give credit to his advisors and his campaign team but they were so well organized from the get go. And I, so I, I did not worry about his ability to get out the vote from an organization perspective. And I think when you look at the Virginia map, the deep red increases in Southwest rural Virginia, which don't have the same issues as Fairfax and Loudoun County is a credit to that, that they got their people out to vote. And, um, but yeah, I was nervous still on November 2nd, because as I said, there's an urgency to, this problem being fixed. And if we were going to have four years of McAuliffe, I was going to be making different decisions. I want my kids to be in public school. I want public schools to thrive. I want them to be successful. But if they're not successful, I'm leaving because my kids are not an experiment for the state. If, if it's not working out, they're gone. And McAuliffe, four years of McAuliffe probably would have meant, meant that my kids would have abandoned public schools. Our family would have. Now there's a shot. And, but it's, a, it's just a shot. They have to earn us back. And if they're not going to earn us back, then we're going to look for alternatives. So do you think that both Democrats and Republicans have learned any lessons from Virginia? I don't think that uh, our school boards have learned many lessons. Uh, I think that they think that they have, but the fact that children are still eating outside in frigid temperatures and facing, listen, in my kids' cafeteria, you everybody has to face one direction and are not allowed to speak during lunch. Um, because somehow, somewhere along the line, somewhere on the school board thought that that would stop spreading COVID, which is insane if you just spend five seconds thinking about that. But they're still doing it. It's really sad. And they could stop it today. They could just sit down and say, let everyone eat lunch. It's fine. Especially, we're probably in one of the most vaccinated areas yeah. of the country. Our, yeah. Like, I spoke to my our school's principal last week because I sent her an email about the kids being outside for lunch, mm -hmm. and she she's great. And she immediately she called me right away, and she was like, um, "You know, my hands are a little bit tied on some of these things. The school board is not giving." any discretion to the schools to make logical choices for their community. I know I, so the point was I talked to the principal about how our school is probably going to have 80, 90% children being vaccinated within the month because mm -hmm. it's that type of a community. You know, there's not a lot of skeptics um, that the parents are vaccinated. The teachers are vaccinated. The administrators are vaccinated. And we're just going to ignore all of that and make kids just suffer yeah. Because of laziness or because of just not wanting to acknowledge some reality. And it's crazy. And so there are a lot of people who have not learned a lot of lessons. What I do hope is 
I hope that Randy Weingarten continues to be persona non grata on the campaign trails for Democrats, which I think she currently is. Um, and I hope that people start realizing that her and Becky Pringle have really been the villains of the pandemic and should be nowhere near our politics or decisions made on behalf of children because they don't care about children at all. Um, I hope that lesson has been learned. And I hope that I hope that Governor Youngkin does a good job of showing other governors how you can lead people through these issues. And I think that that's going to start on day one because he knows that he has a mandate to fix this and fix it quickly. And I think he's going to do it in a way, I, I, I think, I don't know, but I think he's going to do it in a way that also doesn't immediately lose the center left supporters that helped him win as well. Uh, because keeping that coalition together in a blue state is going to be what makes him a very successful governor. And so I'm looking for him to to lead the way. So what does that look like? So are you talking about like if he comes in guns blazing, masks are optional and just plays he plays himself around DeSantos. Do you think that that loses the center left? Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, if I were advising him, I would be telling him to be smarter about. Listen, I think that DeSantis has been proven right in so many ways across the pandemic. He's also sometimes been proven wrong. He's not been perfect. None of the leaders have. Uh, but I think that the first step I would do would be to um, tell to tell the counties that they have a week or two to give the state their plan for when masks would come off. Because I don't think that any school board in this state, in the Commonwealth, has that that metric, they, they're just flying by the you know, finger in the wind. And so it demands some accountability into the system. If you don't have a threshold for when masks come off, then you currently are just acting out of political convenience and not for the kids. So demand that. And then demonstrate that these people have never had a plan to begin with. I think that you can do other things. I mean, obviously he's going to um, probably address the issue of critical race theory and curriculum. I think that he could do that in a way that is um, it's not off-putting as well. It, that allows for there to be accountability in the system, but also for it not to swing the other way where um, now, you know, parents in the middle or on the left think that, you know, it's going to be a Bible study in schools tomorrow. And so, I think that he can do that. I also think that there's just some systemic Virginia things that he can do that don't feel um, tied to it, but are like the fact that it's almost impossible to recall a local official in Virginia. It has to go to a court and a, a likely Democrat prosecutor decides whether or not to keep a person in office or not. Uh, if he simply made Virginia's recall system a little bit better and favorable, uh, like 40 other states are, he could then also insert some accountability to the school board level because right now the school board members feel untouchable. Uh, and so I think that there's a lot of things that he could do right off the bat, but I think part of it is just leveling with the citizens of Virginia. You are safe or your kids are safe. We are looking out for their best interests, which includes their mental health, their physical well-being, um, their ability to not fall behind the, like if you want to talk about income inequality, let's talk about the students in Virginia who who essentially had a year off of school and the students in, let's say, Colorado who didn't like those students now have a 
huge advantage when it comes to, you know, sports, when it comes to academics, being able to get in colleges. You know, there, uh, this morning I saw a neighbor post on Facebook about how her child was being put in, uh, inducted into the National Honor Society and parents weren't allowed to come because of COVID. Now, I think we all spent Thanksgiving watching hundreds of thousands of people rooted on football teams. And that was perfectly acceptable. But your mom can't come see you get into National Honor Society? Like, we just need some common sense. And I think that Glenn Youngkin so far has proven himself to be the common sense candidate. And I hope he's the common sense governor. And that will go a long way just towards reassuring parents who still are nervous that it's okay. Everything is okay. Your kids are okay. Are masks the biggest issue now for parents in schools? I think it's the big, I think it's the the biggest outstanding issue that's still really divisive. Um, I think that there's a lot of parents who want their kids to be masked. I, I also think that there's a lot of kids, frankly, who want to be masked right now, which is a thing I'm also worried about. That's really scary, right? Yeah, because, you know, I, I coach Little League and there are, you know, it's been outdoors. It's been mask free for essentially a year. And there are still kids who are running around the bases in masks. And it's, I, it's because they're worried. Yeah. And I, it, and it's like, you want to just tell them you're okay. You're outside. You're seven years old. You're okay. And, uh, and so I, I think that masks are going to remain a problem, especially when we're going to get the, what about this variant excuse? <laughs> and we don't know how this is going to go. Well, flu season's been going so well, so let's just keep it up for through flu season. And so, you know, I also worry about just their natural immunity. Like I want kids to be, yeah. I want them to catch colds because it builds up your system. Like you can't, you can't live a perfectly healthy bubble lifestyle. Yeah. And they're kids, um, you know, like rub some dirt on it is what, <laughs> you know, that's my parenting method. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. you just got to get dirty and be a kid and, you know, trying to enclose them in these capsules to protect them is not actually helping them. It's hurting them. Yeah. I, I, my kids had play dates over Thanksgiving with a couple of friends who had been in school this whole time with masks on. And, um, it's, it's scaring me a little bit. They were scared to get close to my daughter for a while. They had their masks on optionally for half the play date. Um, and then they kind of like very nervously took them off. Like my, my kids, I think that every kid doesn't like the mask. Um, I think, I think nobody likes the mask. It's uncomfortable, but a lot of people have been sort of convinced that it's necessary. And I'm scared about the mental health of the kids who feel that way. Um, because yeah, I mean, like this, I, every time this issue comes up you, on Twitter, you get a bunch of tweets that say, my kids are fine in the mask. Great. Like, I'm glad I'm happy for your kids that they are tolerating this issue, but it, I wish they weren't, but that, but that's what it is. It's tolerate. You're tolerating it. It's not a good thing. We're not happy. Our kids are wearing masks all the day. That would be nuts. It's it. If the kids are tolerating it, Great. It's less disruptive schools, but I wish the kids weren't tolerating and they would rebel a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, I mean I, it's listen, hard. I know it's hard for the kids. Well, right now there's also a, a, a separate issue that's happening in our school and other schools around the country that were closed is that the kids are now socially disconnected and there's behavior issues popping up everywhere. Yeah. Well, I've seen that too. Yeah. The re recess at our elementary school has become a real problem. And the parent, the PTA and the parents actually volunteered to come 
you know, help monitor recess and, and lunchtime so that the teachers would get a little bit of a break from having to deal with serious. I, I t- so my husband is the editor of the Washington Examiner magazine. You know that obviously, but you know, some of our listeners might not. Um, and I sort of assign him things sometimes. <laughs> and this, I, I was telling him over the weekend, like the behavior issues in schools are are both just spinning out of control. And uh, locally here in Montgomery County, I've heard reports that they've had the police called more for student altercations uh, uh, into November than they had all of the the last normal school year. And they have yeah. fewer kids. They have a lot yeah. fewer. I believe it. And, uh, and also, by the way, right on the heels of Democrats taking school resource officers out of all these schools. <laughs> and yeah. so there's a, there's a problem. And, uh, and so this, I, I think that behavior is going to remain a problem. The academic, the more we find out like how fa- far these kids have fallen behind. And also, by the way, highlighting, um, other areas, like parents now care about the education of children that don't live near them. Like I was flabbergasted when I saw the leaked Baltimore testing scores late earlier this year that showed that high school seniors were graduating with like an elementary school level proficiency in math and reading. Like that's, that is, it's terrifying. Failure. That yeah. is such, that is such a, a crazy amount of failure on behalf of so many people. And it should be a crisis. It should be treated like a crisis and it's not. And so I think that there's, those issues are going to remain, but you know, I, my guess is that our kids school will not be normal ish again until fall of 2022 that we're just going to keep pushing through all these issues. And, and yes, my kids are going to tolerate some of it, but they're also going to understand because I talked to them that, that a lot of it makes no sense that yesterday when we were at the airport traveling back from Thanksgiving and there were 300,000 people shoved into a small area with zero distancing between them, that it was no different for them than if they were six feet apart from somebody in elementary school waiting to walk into the cafeteria. Like they know, they, they live in the real world. They know that school is doing something that's more bizarre than the rest of the world is. Do they understand that? I mean, do they get that? Well, as kids? I think my kids definitely okay. understand it. I, I, don't, I don't know that all kids do, but you know, like, <clears throat> They, they understand that I've been wanting schools to be open. They understand the value yeah. I put in their in-person education. And I think that, you know, I ask them about what things are going on because that's how I find out that you don't get an email for, about every mitigation policy that they're putting in the schools. You have to talk to your kids to find out what's happening. And so I ask them and that's how I hear about the lunch or, you know, at the spring of 2021, when they allowed some of the children to go back two days a week is when I, my son, my kindergartner told me that they had taped off the monkey bars. Right. Because the monkey bars might cause COVID. Yeah. I had, first off, I had to tell him monkey bars don't cause COVID. You're fine. Go play on the playground. But I can't believe I had to then tell the school board monkey bars don't cause COVID because we had known it for a long time. It's like you have to speak to these school board members like they are six-year-olds. How much, you know, with the parent uprising was the the, the anti-meritocratic issue? I know that was a big issue in Fairfax with, I think, Thomas Jefferson's school. Uh, I don't know if you're seeing some of that in your school. Are they getting rid of tracking in math in, you know, the younger grades? Is that, you know, what, what are you seeing on that? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And it was another issue. I think that it wasn't, I, I don't think it swung any elections because it's, it's, it's a rather isolated issue in Northern Virginia right now. But I do think that if I were a Democrat, I would worry about the long-term, we were talking about permanent changes uh, earlier. I would worry about the long-term um, effect that you've had on Asian American voters. Uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson High School is ranked the best high school in America. Uh, it's, it's, it's especially created in order to help really gifted STEM learners um, graduate and move into MIT and Harvard and whatever great institution that they want to go to next in order to have these amazing careers. People move from all over the world, not all over the country, all over the world to get their kids into a line to go into this high school in order for them to have that opportunity. Now what Fairfax County has decided to do is say, there's too many Asian Americans yeah. in those schools. So we're gonna change the rules in order to change the racial makeup. Now, if I was an Asian American, I would be infuriated by that. Uh, and I think that many are, and I think that that's, there's a serious problem that they have there. I also think that that problem is a little bit broader beyond TJ in that, uh, you are starting to see, instead of trying to lift everybody up, trying to push everybody into the middle together. Yeah. And that's not right. Like my, I know I have three children and I know all three of them learn differently, that they are all destined for probably different life choices and careers because, because they are different people. And trying to make them all into the same middle average rather than helping them all excel at the thing that they're good at is bad. And, you know, we, our school has a lot of gifted kids in it. And I have to constantly remind my kids who might not be in those programs, they're learning differently than you. It doesn't mean that they're smarter than you. It means that they're, they, that they have a different learning speed and, and they might be really, their brain might just be wired to deal with numbers. Like I, I went into politics because I'm bad at math. I knew I was bad at math. I didn't need to pretend I was good at it. We're all different. And I think that there's a- Is that why polling is always wrong? <laughs> no, our polling is always correct. At okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, uh, I, 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 I want us to help kids who, who can excel, excel. I want us to give support to the kids who need support. And I want us to be able to treat kids like the unique individuals that they are rather than, listen, every single thing that they do in these school systems in order to, uh, in order to make these scores work out better is not for the kids. It's for the school system. They want to either cover up teaching deficiencies or they want to get more federal funding for whatever. It's not about the kids. And I think my message has been for the last 18 months, just focus on the kids, the kids, the kids are the recipients of this education. They are the customers. It's not the unions, not the school boards. It's not, even parents are not first in that line. It's the children. And if we're not focused on what they need, then we are going to be screwed for a long, long time because we are going to be creating adults who have not gotten what they needed in order to be successful and help this country continue to thrive. And I don't know why that needs saying, but it does. And I'm hoping that, you know, it's registered a little bit at this point. Well, well said, I'd say.
Awesome. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time because we told you we would not do that. And then we did because this was a really good conversation. Thank you. Do you have any sort of final thoughts or anything? Or should we just like let you go back to your life because we've sucked an hour hour out of it already? I I had an hour on the schedule for it and I appreciate it. it. And I'm glad like all those nice things that you said about me, I I could not. Any person that says, why are you doing this? Your homeschooling is crazy. I'm so glad you're doing it. And your amplification and Carol's and Phil and Corey and the, the whole group of people that have been out there really forcing this issue out into the mainstream. I'm like so grateful for, and like, like legitimately like in my soul grateful for. And yeah. so thank you for doing it. And we, we've got a long ways to go, but we've got a pretty good army. Yeah, we do. You do. And it's, and it's growing. The army is definitely growing and the elections were, were good. I think it's um, sort of, creating a reorientation within the Republican party a bit, because um, we are becoming the voice for the, the voiceless, the, the people who didn't have the luxury of homeschooling their kids or, or hiring tutors like this. I, my, my activism is because I was a kid who would have been completely destroyed by the last year and a half. Had I been a kid in 2020, um, I was, you know, low income, single mom, and I would not have turned my monitor on. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. And I, I think we, we, the, the army is strong, like we said, but it, it, there's a lot of fighting to go and, and, yeah. and, and the forces that we're up against are, are, are serious. And so, yeah. and well-funded very well funded. with our own tax dollars. Yeah. yeah. So keep it up. We'll have to have you back back sort of, I, I'd love to do another episode maybe in like a year of like, an autopsy so far of the first year of Glenn Youngkin. I'm, I'm curious and cautiously optimistic. So I think that's like my, my I'm, 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 I'm not even cautious. I'm optimistic. I, yeah, but I mean, like when you, when you win on such a specific mandate mm-hmm. and that's all that I care about, I'm, I'm optimistic. Like if he came around and he, and schools didn't improve, then that would be such a historic failure based on his campaign. And, so, and, and I, I get the sense from what I've seen and heard from him that um, he's not one to tolerate failure. So I think we're in good shape. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rory. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you. Of course. Thanks for doing this. I can't wait to listen to all of them. Okay, well, that was a terrific conversation with Rory Cooper. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Um, Please give us a five-star rating on Apple, Spotify, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Uh, This is Take Back Our Schools brought to you by Ricochet. And I have to mention that Ricochet is running a very nice holiday special of $41 if you give Ricochet for a year as a gift. So please take advantage of that. Uh, I'm Andrew Gubman with my co-host, Bethany Vendel. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Ricochet. Join the conversation.